Our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, before Matt comes. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, then, the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Austin. Good morning. Good to see you. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Matt. Um, I'd love to meet you before you leave today. We're actually going to take a break from our series working through the Sermon on the Mount, although our scripture reading was from the next chapter in that sermon. We're going to return to that uh, probably after Easter sometime. We're going to take a few week break as we uh, move into the final days of the season of Lent and then the celebration of the resurrection. Uh, but this section of Matthew 6 actually has um, some themes that are uh, represented in our text from the epistles today that we're going to begin exploring. In 2005, uh, the late author David Foster Wallace delivered a by now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College, a small liberal arts school in Ohio. Um, if, if you haven't read through that speech or listened to it, I, I would recommend it. Um, we've talked about it at times in the past, but at one point in that speech, he directly addresses the idea of whether personal agency actually means that we are in complete control of our lives and our destinies. That's a fairly widespread and oft-embraced cultural creed, this idea that I am the master of my own domain. I don't owe anybody anything. I serve nobody except my own interests and whatever promotes my well-being. However I define my well-being, whatever promotes that is a worthy pursuit. So even if we wouldn't explicitly make that declaration, it does tend to be a fairly common framework. Wallace warns these graduates he's speaking to during this speech in this way. He says this, because here's the thing, or here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he goes on, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He goes on to flesh this out a bit and, and says, for instance, if you worship money or things, so think of the words of Jesus from Matthew 6, if you worship money or things, you will never feel like you have enough. If you worship your body or beauty or sexual allure, you will always feel ugly, so on and so forth. Now, Wallace wasn't arguing um, or urging these students to become more religious. 
He certainly wasn't promoting the Christian faith in particular. He was simply making the observation that as human beings, we worship. We have no choice but to worship. Our only choice is who or what we worship, or as Bob Dylan famously sang, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Or as Jesus says in our gospel text from today, from Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You will have a master, Jesus seems to suggest, and you can't serve two of them. The thread running through each of these, Wallace, Dylan, and Jesus, you will worship. You will serve somebody. You will have a master. Thinking that rejecting religion in general, or Jesus more specifically, thinking that rejection would open me to brand new realms of uninhibited agency where I am, in fact, the master of my own domain is naive at best. Well, in today's text from the epistles, Romans chapter 6, we find Paul exploring some of these same ideas. I'll begin reading in verse 15. We're going to read through a pretty lengthy section. Are you ready? Paul says this. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Thanks, Paul. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were, are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Set free from sin, Paul says, to become slaves of God's. It's a pretty extreme image. And I do think as we, we consider this image, a note of caution is necessary. And that is that we must not assume that Paul's use of the concept of slavery in order to explore a spiritual principle, that that use of slavery is a tacit or even overt defense of the institution of slavery. I do not think it is. We, we talked about this at length in the past as we did a series through the book of Philemon. We've talked about it repeatedly as we've looked at 
sections like the household codes that Paul uses in a place like Ephesians 5. In fact, though slavery certainly was a part of the society in which Paul writes, as I read him, he actually subtly subverts the very foundation that makes slavery possible and in so doing is calling all members of the Christian community out of dehumanizing ways of relating to one another and instead into lives of mutual submission. This seems to be the message in Ephesians, submit to one another. Or as he instructs Philemon to accept Onesimus back not as a bond servant, that, that's the relation when Onesimus leaves Philemon, accept him back, not as a bond servant, but as a beloved brother. That is a change in relation that fundamentally undoes the very notion that slavery is built upon. If that is the way we approach one another as brothers and sisters, the notion of something like slavery is completely incomprehensible. So while I do not think we should see Paul's language here as approval of slavery, Paul does use this very familiar societal reality at the point to make a point about the Christian life. And that is this, that the Christian life is a life of submission. It's a life of submission in a variety of different ways. Yes, we all submit to one another um, in love, and we do so with no partiality. We do so with no prejudice. And by the way, that call into a life of submission, somebody like me as a pastor or a leader, we are not exempt from that call into a life of submission to the rest of the body of Christ. All of us submit to one another in love. Ultimately, though, our submission is to Jesus as Lord, a willing acceptance of his claim on our lives. And Paul carefully explains that when his audience accepted the lordship of Christ, they threw off their chains. They were emancipated from the slavery of sin, but that emancipation brought servitude of another kind. And this changes, I think, how we understand our freedom as human beings. If we understand freedom as an unencumbered pursuit of whatever I happen to want in this moment, I think we misunderstand freedom. We at least don't understand it in a way that is Christian. In fact, that understanding of freedom where I get to do whatever I want in every moment, I think is according to Jesus, a pernicious form of bondage precisely because I am being shackled, maybe not by somebody else, but I'm shackled by my own inconsistencies and my own limitations. I can't always trust myself to make decisions that promote long-term health. I am, for instance, tempted by instant gratification or happiness in this moment, and that can be a genuine threat to long-term joy and flourishing. So if I buy into this notion that human freedom means I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want it, I'm free in theory, but I am shackled by my own selfishness. 
Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked at for over a month at this point, Jesus has outlined some very clear, radical ethical commitments for those who are coming under the reign of God. And what I think he suggests in part in the beginning of that sermon and what Paul suggests here in Romans 6 reveals that while God has indeed liberated us from bondage, the only way that newfound freedom can be exercised in life-giving, fulfilling ways is if we accept the way of life Jesus invites us into. Pursuing self-centered desires at all costs in the name of freedom might just in the end put me on a destructive path. You know, it's been suggested that to live a fulfilling life, we need a variety of different things. On one hand, we need a degree of freedom. We need genuine, deep human connection, and we need purpose or meaning. We, we might add several other things to that list, but these are some of the things that help contribute or, or lead us into a fulfilling life. But to pursue any of those three things necessarily places limits on my pursuit of the others. Does, does that make sense? For instance, if I want genuine, deep, lifelong uh, human connection, my personal freedom is necessarily going to be limited to a certain degree. Because I can't have a meaningful marriage, I can't be a decent parent, I can't be a good friend if my freedom my desires, my needs are always the standard by which I am making decisions. All of those relational connections that I have in my life require sacrifice and they require a willingness on my part to tether myself to another human being who has their own needs and desires. And sometimes my needs and desires and their needs and desires are set against one another. Or we could think about it in relation to our work. Finding meaning and purpose in work limits my freedom to do something like sit around and eat Doritos and play Nintendo all day. In junior high, I thought that was meaning and purpose. <laughs> but alas, it's not. So, so we find freedom in Christ, but it's a freedom that puts us on a particular path where our lives are always oriented to Jesus and that puts certain constraints on us. Dallas Willard helpfully frames and, and even reimagines Christian discipleship through the lens of the concept of apprenticeship. This is something that we talk about pretty routinely because I think it's really important that we have this shift take place where we consider discipleship in this regard. We willingly become apprentices of Jesus, where we stick close to him. We abide in him, that we might not only receive salvation at some point in the distant future, but that we might receive it today. We abide in him, that we might absorb his way of living a flourishing life in the present moment. 
becoming apprentices of Jesus. There was a popular and fascinating documentary released in 2011 called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Has anybody seen it? I know some of you have because I've had conversations about it. Jiro Dreams of Sushi, it chronicles the life and work of Jiro Ono, who at the time many considered to be the, premier, the, the world's premier sushi chef. I don't, I don't even know if he's still creating sushi anymore at this point. Is it creating? It's not cooking. Creating? Crafting? I don't know if he's still making sushi at this. I think he's nearing 100 years of age. But the documentary explores not only Jiro's process, his lifelong pursuit of mastering this art, it also follows the pursuits of his two sons, who are both sushi chefs in their own right, and they are learning from their father, who is the master sushi chef. And it becomes clear that for these two sons, if they hope to master this art, it was going to be an all-encompassing affair. Sushi would be their sole focus. They would breathe, eat, and sleep sushi. It's sort of like Danny Rojas and Ted Lasso, but instead of football is life, sushi is life. It's everything. And, and to become an apprentice of their master, like Jiro, would require a willingness for them to lay aside some of their own thoughts about what making great sushi was about. They would have to be willing to follow to mirror, to learn, to embody the way of crafting sushi if they want to imitate what the master was doing. They weren't going to achieve that level of mastery by saying, yeah, sushi's cool, and dad, you clearly make the best, but there's a whole new world that you're unfamiliar with. Let me introduce you to the world of Doritos. What if, and just hear me out, what if we put a cool ranch Dorito on this world-class piece of sushi? Of course not. That would be a travesty. They have to lay aside some of their own desires or thoughts about what living into this art form meant. And I know it's an incomplete analogy, but when you become an apprentice, it necessarily means that you leave some of your desires, some of the things you think about what it means to live the good life, you leave some of that behind, trusting that Jesus knows better what the good life actually is than I do. And if I could be willing to live into that, I might actually begin to find abundant life and true freedom. So this is how I'm hoping for us to, to begin to think about this tension that we find in this text and others like it, where Paul says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free to righteousness. Or as another translation puts it, when you were slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness or free in regard to righteousness. When you're slaves to sin, there is no place for righteousness, there is no firm foundation upon which to build your lives. In her incredible, albeit massive work, simply entitled The Crucifixion, uh, 
Fleming Rutledge, I think, really helpfully navigates this seeming contradiction or the tension between freedom and servitude for the life that is hidden in Christ. This is what she said in part. And you might hear some resonances to the thoughts we began with this morning. She says, no one is capable of being captain of his own soul, master of her own fate. Each of us is worked upon by unconscious impulses of which we are not even aware and over which we have little control. Paul, unlike the typical American, does not think in terms of autonomous human beings. For instance, Paul proudly identifies himself as a slave to Christ in Galatians and here in Romans 6. And she goes on later in her view, no one is quote-unquote free in the domain of this world as it is. Either we must live our lives in the clutches of soul-destroying powers or we are delivered into the obedience of faith. So paradoxically, the new life that we receive in Christ Jesus is a life of servitude, but that life of service is actually true and perfect freedom. Now, this is where I think we we have to understand that submission to God's rule, living as God's servant, to, to use the language from Paul, is nothing like chattel slavery. We are not slaves to God in a way that is oppressive or debilitating or harsh, where our humanity and our dignity is stripped away from us. We are servants of God's, but that is actually a liberating servitude, a servitude that makes it possible for us to flourish as the constraints of our own selfishness are stripped away. Later in her argument, Rutledge says this, when Paul says in Romans 6 that obedience leads to righteousness, he does not mean this in the usual way as though righteousness were the reward for a long, arduous struggle on our part to be obedient. Rather, he means that the righteousness of God is the active, recreating power that enables the new life of obedience to take shape. This is what the new life in Christ means. For this is how Jesus later puts it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites, take my yoke upon you. The reality is that apprenticing under Jesus does put a yoke on us. It is not a a free-for-all Nintendo all-nighter fueled by Doritos and Oreos. I've got Doritos on the mind. Apprenticing under Jesus puts a yoke on us. But Jesus says it is an easy yoke. It is a light burden. For those who have labored, 
for those who are heavy laden, those who have been beaten down by the slavery of sin, but also beaten down by their own attempts to overthrow that oppression through their own righteousness. This is the liberating effect of submission to Jesus as Lord. We are freed from sin. We are also freed from our attempts to uselessly overcome sin in our own power. In submission to Jesus, in obedience to him, we are set free to truly live the good life as Jesus defines it rather than the way our prevailing culture defines it. It's the recreating power of God, as Rutledge says, at work in us that makes righteousness possible. It is not our own attempts to fix ourselves. It is not a striving and a straining to be perfect. It's not strict adherence to the law, whether we think of the Mosaic law or even of these new ethical standards that Jesus outlines in the Sermon on the Mount. It is not our ability to pick ourselves up. It is the work that God is doing in us to transform our hearts so that our obedience is an overflow of that transformation. It's similar to the language that we find in Ezekiel 36. If you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, it's wild. Um, and it's a lot of really bad news. We're, we're talking like 30 chapters of really bad news for the people of Israel. But then things finally shift and there is a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. There's hope for renewal and, and redemption and restoration. But the hope is not in what the people of Israel are going to be able to do for themselves. The hope is in what God is going to do in them. And the prophet sums it up in this way in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's obedience that proceeds from soft hearts that have been transformed by the spirit of God. It's like our prayer from a couple of weeks ago, maybe you remember it, where we declared together we have no hope in ourselves to help ourselves, no power to do anything to save ourselves. That, that's not a prayer of resignation to the way things are, but rather a realistic assessment that we simply can't save ourselves. We cannot free ourselves from the grip of sin. Thanks be to God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Lord Jesus, today as we consider The life of submission we are invited into. Submission to you and your way of life. We trust that in that submission we find freedom. We find liberation. 
We find deliverance not only from the powers outside of us, but from the struggle in our own hearts. And so today we recommit to take your yoke upon us. A yoke that puts us on a particular path where our lives are always oriented to you, but a yoke that is easy, a burden that is light, one that is not oppressive or debilitating or dehumanizing, but one that leads us into flourishing. We humbly ask, God, that you would continue to transform our hearts. Knowing that it is not our own ability to be righteous or holy that puts us in right standing with you, but it is the work that you are doing in our hearts, a work that is ongoing and will last the rest of our lives. And so today we are reminded of this path we are on, the path of following you. A path that doesn't always feel easy. We'll be made aware of that as we head into Palm Sunday and then into Holy Week as we think about your path of suffering. But Jesus, we pray that you would give us the courage the willingness to receive your life. We open our hearts and our minds to you. We invite you to continue working in our lives that we may more faithfully live as participants in your kingdom or faithfully live as apprentices of yours. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to celebrate around the table today. Celebrate the life, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and I believe the words of, of Paul to be true, that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I believe that's true for, for each of us here today as we've gathered to worship, there's freedom. And I would just invite you to accept that freedom that Jesus makes available for you. Accept the life that he has offered. We're going to make two lines down these center aisles as you come forward to receive at the Lord's table. You'll hear these words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Receive the gift of life, receive the freedom of Jesus. I want to say a prayer and then I'll invite you to come. Oh God, the author of peace and lover of concord, to know you is eternal life. And to serve you is perfect freedom. Defend us, your humble servants, in all assaults of our enemies that we surely, trusting in your defense,
may not fear the power of any adver adversaries. Through the might of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?